0: On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses the seminal Queensryche album, *Rage for Order*. Hi, and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this special edition of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Tom Corcoran. Paul Zotter, and Ken Gregory as we finally deal with Queensright's Rage for Order.
1: Yes.
2: Yeah. Gentlemen,
0: oh. this <laughs> is the progressive palaver episode that is decades in the making. Decades in the <laughs> making.
2: <laughs> that says a lot given most of our content. Subject matter. Yeah, but, but this is like, you know, I... How many times have we postponed
0: this episode so we, the four of us could be here? We, <laughs> we have postponed this episode, I think, about two months. Wow. Maybe, maybe even a little bit longer than that. But I, I mean, and, and we've, we've made reference on the podcast before to this album and our, you know, experiences with it. And if I remember correctly, we, you, I was sort of on the outside, but, but Rage for Order was was percolating through the group after it came out, but before Mindcrime came out. Because we all know the, the story of when Mindcrime came out. And, and so I, I don't know exactly when this was, but we were, what, 16, 17, essentially, when, when this came out. You guys had the band. There's a lot of time spent at, at Jay's house practicing and I I can remember you know I have visions of some of these conversations around this record what really sticks out to me was the fact that Jay was just so on board with this and would rave forever about the the drums and the drum sounds and and everyone seemed to be into this and it took me a while before i finally either got my hands on it or decided to listen to it or or whatever but it was it was one of those records i you know first listen you're just like oh my god this is, <laughs> this is the greatest thing ever and what's really amazing to me all these years later how old is this thing 20 30 35, 37 years old, whatever the case may be, I can just take it out anytime and put it in, and it's just as wonderful as the first time I heard it, if not more so. This probably isn't the case, so I will couch my words here. It doesn't present itself to me as dated in any way, shape, or form. Like, if I were to pick up, no offense, Tom, say, a Motley Crue album from the day, Or a Rat album, and you're just like, "Uh, okay, great.
1: Why? Wait. Why? Why would I take offense? I I
0: I just thought you had a thing for Motley Crue. I don't know. (laughs) My my apologies.
1: I I have a thing for Shout the Devil. Sure. Okay.
0: But this just I view this as perfectly timeless, and it's really been fun for me. As often is the case when when we're doing a segment on a band. Because there will be albums like this that I know and hold dear and have spent a lot of time with. But when I start to sort of construct the arc that I, I kind of want the podcast to go through, it, it, it enriches in some ways an album like this. And so listening to Rage for Order specifically, trying to see how it it bridges from the warning into Operation Mindcrime and even beyond, uh, there there are some very clear indications here of, of Empire Queensryche. It just makes it all that much better. There's just so much about this, right? Like, it could be so ridiculous. One of the most ridiculous aspects of this album, obviously, is the the band Photograph. And, and the photographs in in the thing, and it that's addressed in the wikis, and I meant to, and I did not look up the um, the Lost Boys because you know th- this whole thing is vampire crazy, and I don't know if the Lost Boys came out before, or after, during this, whatever the case may be. But there's that. Okay, so there's this whole glam look about it, right? And, and what really struck me, until one sees this era of Jeff Tate's hair in profile, <laughs> there's no way to really comprehend what's going on. Like, it, it, the pictures on the album, it's one thing. But, but when you see it in profile, the hair takes on its own identity. It is phenomenal. I, I can't even describe it. It's this huge, flowing pompadory mullet thing. It's it's so off the charts. So you get stuff like that, right? And and it could be so mired in eighties goofiness, but it's all so delightful and wonderful. And I think back to one of you guys when we first started preparing for the Queensrite segment. Someone found a a video of a live show from this era on YouTube. And it's kind of funny to watch Jeff's hair kind of collapse under the <laughs> weight of the sweat over the, the course of that show. And somehow this album just stays as fresh and wonderful as as anything ever could. All of that is is just my way of gushing and saying how much I absolutely love this record and amazingly I'm not even sure if it's my favorite Queensryche record right now all right prediction (laughs) we're not going to finish this album tonight
1: (laughs) I think Rage for Order is an anomaly not only in the world of Queensryche but I mean I'm talking about any other band that was out there during the time or after the fact I think I said something like I think they just came down from outer space and and just made this and went back. I can't compare this album to anything. What amazes me, they really break the mold with the keyboard stuff and the sound design, using really dark effects like sound effects and violent sound effects with 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 the drums and, and things like that. And they they do so much on this album. I really wish that they took this path that they were on and sort of made another album because as far as I'm concerned, they made an epic album. This is a masterpiece. And they, they went up, they made this, they went back down and then they started over again. They erased the slate and then they made mind crime. And then that went, that was the best. I think they needed more life in this, in this era. I get so excited when I listen to this. I get just as excited being a 50-year-old man in the car, singing along or trying to sing along yeah. um, <laughs> I, I, in my Grand Cherokee as I was when I was 16 in my Trans Am.
2: Yeah, it's singular in nature for Queensryche. My experience with this album was similar to what Joe was saying. But I have distinct memories of Dan wanking on new regal at at practice and and you know be in between songs where we'd, we'd be getting ready to start the, the the night and and he would start playing on his you know on his cardinal aria pro two. and jay would come oh, in yeah. and the drums and then he would play the main riff and then they would like sing along and they would be like laughing and and playing chords and and all I could think of was like, oh, God, this sounds just awful. <laughs> like, <laughs> and 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 so it sort of became this, you know, week after week, they would be playing this and talking about Queensryche and they would be and I would just be like, oh, whatever. And then one evening, I am at Kenny G's house at the at the townhouse. And we were sitting in the eating area that looked over the family room. Yep. And we were playing cards or something mm-hmm. at the table. and. Ken had some music playing. I'm sitting there and I just was like, Jesus. I'm like, Ken, what are we listening to? And he looked at me dead in the eye, stone cold and said, it's Queensryche. (laughs) (laughs) And he was kind enough to lend me the cassette for the remainder of the weekend. The next day I had an eye appointment in Rising Sun outside of Philly in North Philly. Oh, wow. I drove from Doylestown all the way to Rising Sun listening to Rage for Order and then drove all the way home listening to Rage for Order. And I don't think I stopped listening to Rage for Order until Tom showed up with, <laughs> with <laughs> Operation Minecraft. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, I agree with what you said that it, as crazy as it sounds, it has a somewhat of a timeless sound to it. Right. yeah as 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 much as the drums are these big bombastic 80s inspired drums as much as some of those chime keyboards seem to me very much like the keyboards of the of the time somehow this uh, album Stands the test of time, and when you put it in, it doesn't take you to the warning. It doesn't take you to out of the cellar and those very dated sounding records when you go back and and, and listen to them. And what's fascinating to me is Ken just recently bestowed upon us the website with the demos. Right for this for this record, and what's crazy is when you listen to those demos, Rage for Order could have very easily been the Warning Part Two, and could have been a dud. I think that Rage for Order gets just enough production and just enough push from Neil Kernan into places that maybe they wouldn't have gone otherwise and at the perfect time for them. And I think it's that combination that makes this record so special and what makes it stand apart from the rest of their catalog. And, you know, I think it's funny, Tom, you said you wish there was another album. It's funny to me because whatever Neil Kernan did with them, it feels like he took the warning era Queensryche to the highest maximum level and almost prepared them to work with someone like Peter Collins. Not not to say anything against Neil Kernan. I mean, that dude's catalog speech for itself. I think it's that combination of where they were as artists and then their willingness to be produced, it all just happened quite magically.
3: The last time you told that story, I was using some kind of profanity. So either you cleaned it up or, or <laughs> <and you're, laughs> maybe you were previously hyperbolic. I really love this album. I was, by this point in 1986, too cool for school. Probably my proggy edge peaked in 1982 with the home video release of Exit Stage Left. And, and after that, I was just all over the map with my influences, getting less and less metal all the time. But this brought me right back into it. In regards to the timeline of progressive rock, it's a really interesting time. 1984, Queensryche, The Warning. It's September. It's near near the end of the year, not too much terribly going on in the worlds of prog and metal but something interesting unbeknownst to us in 1985 king's x was formed uh that year we had marillion misplaced childhood uh, rush power windows asia astra roger waters left in 1985 1986 rolls around and this is kind of that really pivotal prog meets pop moment where peter gabriel releases so in general Genesis releases Invisible Touch. And a week after that, Queensryche releases Rage for Order. So while we were fans to whatever extent of Peter Gabriel and, and Genesis, we clearly had some metal balls left and we were uh, rocking out here with, with uh, Queensryche. Uh, I, I I just want to say for the record that Rage for Order in 1986 was before the 1992 Rage Against the Machine, so they're declaring the rage word earlier than most bands. Although I did find a German band simply called Rage. Okay. uh, Because no one beats the Germans. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly technology or metal? (laughs) Metal.
0: (laughs) Certainly not in this regard. So going from that, as we normally do, then we can go into some of the specifics of this particular record. As you mentioned, Ken, it was released in June of 1986 on the label EMI America and produced by the aforementioned Neil Kernan. The personnel on the record include Jeff Tate, he of the Super Duper Pompadour on lead vocals and keyboards, Chris DeGarmo on guitars and backing vocals, Michael Wilton on guitars and backing vocals. Eddie Jackson on bass and backing vocals, and Scott Rockenfield on drums and percussion. Additional musicians are credited as Neil Kernan, also on keyboards, and Bradley Doyle, Emulator Programming. The track listing is Walk in the Shadows, I Dream in Infrared, The Whisper, Gonna Get Close to You, The Killing Words, Surgical Strike, Noia Regal, Chemical Youth, We Are Rebellion, London, Screaming in Digital, and I Will Remember. Now, the the intro on the wikis is very short for this, so we may want to dive in into the rest of the article on the wikis for some interesting little tidbits as we go along. Rage for Order is the second studio album by the American progressive metal band Queensryche, released on June 27, 1986. The album was re-released on May 6, 2003, with four bonus tracks which isn't really that interesting but the the main article does talk a little bit about the the Tri-Reich logo this is the the first album cover to prominently feature the Tri-Reich logo although not credited the front cover was designed by late English-born metal and rock journalist Gary Sharp Young as i recall correctly from previous research the Tri-Reich logo is actually credited to Scott Rockenfield's brother, is that correct? I'd agree with that. I don't remember exactly. The Queensryche tri reich logo, I think it's the perfect logo. And the band used it to such great effect throughout this period that we're going to cover. From now, certainly through Promised Land. Both DeGarmo and Wilton used it in spectacular fashion on their guitars, Rockenfield incorporated it into his drum kit. The way they utilized it in the album covers of this era, absolutely brilliant. It's nondescript and yet sinister at the same time. I think it's such a brilliant, brilliant logo. I've always sort of equated this Tri-Rike logo and and this album cover specifically with the Tri-Rike logo over the globe and this idea of Rage for Order as sort of setting the stage for mind crime in a certain way.
2: Yeah, I always liked the way that this logo for Rage for Order sort of played on the military. I mean, I'm no expert when I look at the Rage for Order album cover and the
0: It it does What's feel it? very militaristic, yes. It's
2: like very marine ish to me. Yeah. But yeah. Uh-huh. Like the
0: idea of Rage for Order, like Rage as sort of a military institution They're not just angry for the sake of being angry. They're not just angry young men railing against anything. The stories that they tell are around this idea of purposeful revolution with some sort of goal in mind. It's not just, you know, fuck the power. It's we need something else going on here, which, you know, for whatever reason, it resonated with me then and it resonates with me now. It comes across as more believable. Ultimately, I think it speaks to a certain theatricality to Queensryche that is going to come across. In some regards, it's almost, and this is going to sound very strange and potentially blasphemous, but it's almost like listening to a musical soundtrack. There's a story that's coming out here.
1: Absolutely. That was one of my notes, Joe. Um, You hit it right on the head. This is very theatrical. Jeff Tate. Jeff, Tate takes it, just, oh. The theatrics really grabbed me on, on this. The main theme of Rage for Order revolves around the word, word order, and it takes on three different meanings. Order is referred to in relationships, it's referred to political sense, and in technological format. All the songs in this album fit in those three categories. That really paves its way a little bit to mind crime. It sort of gives us a hint of what they want to say.
3: I was going to compliment Scott Rockenfeld's pocket in independence and just his tenacity to stay in his zone. Now, sometimes he does a lot of the syncopations himself, or he's joining people on syncopations, but maybe just one symbol. And he's keeping. The kid can snare right in the pocket. There are places where Jeff will play triplets on the keys and Scott won't join him. And Scott will stay square and straight and Jeff will be dot, 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 dot. And I really like that, that kind of a dance that, that blows me away because when a whole band joins in to do triplets, it just sounds like a bunch of third graders. But when you, when you get just one guy doing it, then, then it's like, oh, they're professionals. These guys are good. Yeah, rhythmically, they go outside the lines. I think they know who's doing it when, and, and they have enough independence from each other to, to pull it off. And, and it was just an awesome time. It was before click tracks were mandatory. And even if they are using them in the studio, even if they start with them and then stop them, as as many bands often did, they were just comfortable with each other and talented enough to keep it really interesting.
0: In this podcast, throughout all the episodes we've done and all the years we've been doing this, it is very simple to just not talk about the drummer in whatever context we're dealing with. In this main sequence of Queensryche, Scott Rockenfell makes himself an integral part of this. He's not just sitting underneath everything. I drum along to some of these, these songs as opposed to just focusing on the guitars or whatever else is going on, which, you know, that doesn't always happen. And, and a lot of the, the feeling and identity comes from him.
2: What's track three? Is that the whisper for the thousands of times I've listened to that song? So many different things, like at least 80% of the time, I'm just trying to, to sing Jeff Tate going, how the fuck is he singing all those notes? (laughs) And the other times I'm just listening to the, the guitars and like but then there's like five percent of the time where i'm just driving down the road with my hands gripped on the wheel with my eyes wide open thinking how the fuck is scott rockenfeld playing the hi-hat that way through the verse (laughs) like how the fuck is he keeping time like that like it is unbelievable
0: some of the things that 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 he adds so epic (laughs) <laughs> you know, one of the things about about Scott, and I, I haven't seen a lot of interviews, but I, I have seen at least one, if not two, with Scott, and he comes across, and this is going to sound terrible, as extremely intelligent. He, he maybe brings something different to the table than you might normally see in, in a drummer. <laughs> I, I was, <laughs> was...
2: Basically, Joe just slammed drummers, <laughs> just in case you weren't paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Uh, <laughs> without, pulling, without really bringing up the stereotype about drummers, he basically just said <laughs> the same thing.
3: I'm trying to jump in here uh, uh, because I did invest in a book, as I've been doing in the later years of our little palaver here. Um, this is Building an Empire, The Story of Queensryche by Beach, Naren, and Heaton. And uh, it does have a page dedicated to the tri reich Oh, cool. Um, and, and I just wanted to bring up the EP that they released has a modified bird that is the early version, but you have to flip it over on the back. Uh, so I'll leave it up to your searching skills to pull up one of those. The artist, a roommate of Jeff Tate, Wes Griswold, would sign his artworks with a... Peregrine Falcon, and he came up with the uh, symbol on the back of the EP underneath the Queen's Reich name that looks like some kind of a winged bird, and that morphed itself
0: into the tri So if we keep going down that rabbit hole, according to the wikis, they also credit uh, Wes Griswold with his Peregrine Falcon. Uh, Says he also used it for the stage set and backdrop of Queensryche's first tour, which he designed. After the band was signed, the record company adopted the Doodle as the band's logo. However, the Tri-Rike has never been trademarked by Queensryche due to a long-standing controversy over who actually created the Tri-Rike. Todd Rockenfeld, brother of Queensryche's drummer, who designed the typeface of the word Queensryche on the front and back of the EP, claimed the design of the Tri in its eventual form was his, and the band acknowledges his role in the development of the Tri Got ourselves some controversy.
3: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. We like that.
0: Indeed, we do. Whatever the case may be, it's a fucking fantastic logo, and I just love the way they use it. Mm hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. And whenever I see it, I I kind of get this reaction, almost a uh, mind crime ish type triggering reaction like, oh, I need to pay attention now.
0: Um,
3: And and that's how I felt when I first saw the Tesla logo.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, it, It does have sort of the same sort of dimension to it. You know, given
2: all the theatrics that we've talked about and the impact and the lasting impact that this record has had and has. I can't imagine it any other way without them standing on those steps in those glorious gothic robes oh. with the the absolutely most ridiculous hair you've ever seen. I'm so glad that's what ended up in the CD booklet on the album cover. As stupid as it looks and as silly as it is now, somehow in my brain, it just matches perfectly. I remember DeGarmo especially was foppish in those pictures. Yeah, I think he liked it. I think he may have been the only one that... that...
1: <laughs> I have a little something that um, it doesn't really fit in any particular song, so I wanted to, 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 to bring this up. Neil Kern was chosen by Queensryche because he had a diverse background. And up until this point, he had a huge resume that wasn't all one style of a band. It wasn't all like heavy metal or you know, any one particular thing. And the thing that got him the gig was eclectic resume. And um, I, I, I went through it uh, today and I wanted to read some of them because it's interesting to read these bands. And then when you go through the songs, you're like, oh, okay, you pick up little things. Um, he did Brand X, Do They Hurt? Um, Hall Notes, Voices, Yes, Yes Shows, 1980. Dexy's Midnight Runners, 81. Hall Notes, Private Eyes, um, Robert Hazard, Escalator of Life, John Anderson, Animation, Hall Notes, H2O, Brand X. Is there anything about uh, Peter Gabriel, Plays Live, 83, the Romantics? Wow.
2: When I was reading through that list, Tom, I was like, Peter Gabriel's Plays Live? What? I quickly went and ran over to my vinyl record, courtesy of uh, Joe Beauclair, and pulled out the sleeve. And sure enough, it says right... Like, it's the top line of the credits. (laughs) Recorded and engineered by Neil Kernan. And I was just like, wow. I can't believe that. That is epic. Yeah, he he was all over
0: the place and still is. I love that he crosses over into Kansas with Drastic Measures, which is a nice segue into where we'll go next. So I guess it's time to go into... The music itself. And we start with Walk in the Shadows. What a huge way to open an album. I mean, it's just right out of the gate. Queensryche says we are not fucking around, boys and girls. This is what we're going to bring. It's monstrous. Just everything about it. Everything we've already talked about. The guitar's doing their thing. You have Tate's super dramatic vocals. It just
1: sets the table
0: absolutely perfectly.
1: It's just such the perfect song, hard rock, heavy metal song, that it just takes you by the jugular and it just doesn't let go.
2: Right before the vocals come in, they may have used the Boss Super Distortion Feedbacker pedal uh, because there's like that that, that real high feedback (laughs) note that comes in before... (laughs) Jeff Tate breaks the silence. Yeah. For me, this, the the two standout pieces around this song, the sheer brilliance in the vocal performance, the delivery that Jeff Tate gives is just, it's nonstop and it's so aggressive and so high and just so acrobatic and theatrical. It's, it's just everything you want in (laughs) this style of, of vocal. And then and then the, Paul,
3: the, will you admit to singing this in the car and like it, halfway through you're like, I have no air and you're just I, gasping.
2: I, I, <laughs> I swear the only thing more frustrating than trying to sing this in the car is is the thought in my brain that I may have at one time been able to sing it in the car, <laughs> which I'm sure I never have been through all the weeks that we were threatening to talk about this. And I would like listen to this in the morning, going to work or coming home the next day, my throat would be killing me like I'd be hoarse. And like and then there would be like a week I would have a gig at, on the at the on the weekend and I'd be like I got to put I got to put rage for order away this week because if I listen to it I'm going to screw myself for the weekend. So but the uh the other the other thing that just absolutely blows me away is the dual guitar solo. Um, yes. I mean it is just flawless. It's so meticulously accurate. Every time I listen to it, I'm I'm amazed by it.
3: Yes, it's it's amazing. I am a good fourth or fifth or sixth lower than your voice, Paul. But I still force myself to sing at least one verse of this whenever I can, and it's a fucking ball buster.
0: I'll leave it there. From that regard, it's a terrible way to open the record because you destroy yourself vocally before you even get started. <laughs>
3: Well, you know, maybe we should do some, some outreach. Uh, Jeff Tate's vocal coach passed away, uh, the maestro. But, but there is a guy who claims to be his heir, who adopted some of his students, or at least in that Seattle region. So, you know, it'd be nice to get some commentary on that style, if if, if it's convenient for any of us or for
0: anyone. So the next song is I dream in infrared. Now, being a chemist who has specialized in using infrared spectrophotometers, I always thought this was really really cool that they talk about infrared. But it's it's just fundamentally again another fantastic song. The opening to this is just so beautiful, right? Cuz you got that that opening with arpeggiated guitars and the chimes and they intercut with the with the big distorted riff but it's not disjointed it's not out of place it's so fucking wonderful and then it goes into the verse right and you've got the acoustic guitar with the electric brakes it's one of those little things but Scott's got this drum fill at the end of the second verse it's perfect it's like I couldn't imagine the song without it even though it's such a small little thing This is just a song that I have always really responded to. And this is one of the teases that Jeff Tate does with with normal folks on this, because he'll have these songs where he'll sing part of it in a manner that you're like, oh, wait, I can do this. And then next thing you know, you're like, oh, and you're falling over injured, you know.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Some of the brilliance in this for me is first verse is basically just the same progression repeated. But in the second verse, which may have one of the best lines, stanzas in the entire album for me, you've gathered all my secrets and I don't know who I am. I even feel alone when you're near cause you'll never understand. But a lot of the lyrics of- on this record are phenomenal. They, they are and and it's funny because on the demo like that completely got a rewrite and i'm so glad that it did because like where it landed was like wow but then the next line there it's not just a repeat of the of the line it's a different little progression that goes which is just a genius little part and it allows for more of that theatrical vocals to come through and then builds like we said the time is right i'll leave tonight don't look in my eyes because you'll never see them so black yeah oh god slays me
1: this song also almost foreshadows something that is also one of queen's like staples and that's eddie jackson's like really deep bass sound it's just a little bit then you realize how important it is it's nice to hear that in the very beginning and then to hear the arpeggios it's nice to actually bring everything down a little bit because even though we're only on the second song like "Walking the shadows just has you like flying in the
0: air. Another point that kind of came out a little bit ago with regards to this, and, and we've made this comment before on other records, but I think it's it's part of the mystique for Rage for Order. And actually, this is something that Queensryche, again, has demonstrated themselves to be good at, and that is tracking an album. I think the, the sort of emotional ebb and flow of this record is is almost perfect. Now, one of the things that we were always very excited to talk about with Queensryche was this sound design aspect. And it's not a 100% extant here. You are starting to get some of that. The sound design aspects are maybe a little bit more subtle than they're going to be on the next record or two but they are starting to sort of bring this together and again at this point the wall existed and so you have to imagine that the the capabilities of pink floyd in this area had some impact on on someone in this band on what they were doing and i think the whisper which is our next song is is a prime example of that now there's it's it's not again the most obvious of sound design aspects but they do create a soundscape in this and like even just something as simple as when you get that die in the, in the background there, you know, Mm -hmm. it just, it's just, it's bringing in that texture that is absolutely brilliant. And I think also the whisper is another fine example of the use of the, of the dual lead guitars Degarmo and Wilton are, are really at the top of their game with regards to that aspect here as well.
1: You're you're absolutely right. In one of the documentaries, they talked about one of the days they had like a breakout day, and they just recorded all of these really violent, smashing sounds. It's the kind of thing that if you're like the wrong band, who's just like, you know, just not in the right place, just too experimental, and they're just wearing things on their sleeve, just for the sake of doing it, a lot of you would hear, you would notice a lot of these sounds a little bit too much. Yeah. And I think that what they did on this album, and I, I I really love listening to this because I do a lot of work in in, in sound design. And a lot of it is mixing things, you know, so you don't notice it. And it's, and it's, the same, it's the same way even in filmmaking, like even, even special effects, even visual effects, you're sort of making these visual effects so you don't notice them. Right. So, so they're real. And, um, one of the impressive things about Rage for Order is that when I really started looking into this album, I realized how much they did put in It wasn't um, a gimmick. There's a feeling you get, and, and that's what sound good sound is all about. And uh, we'll be talking more about the keyboard sounds, but it's sort of one and the same because they, they, they sampled all this stuff and then they, they mixed everything and they put the textures in there it was done in a really tasteful way. And so that's one of the things I got of this years later.
3: Hmm. I'd like to comment on the Pink Floyd influence. Uh, during The Warning, I don't know if we referenced James Guthrie, but the fourth producer in The Wall, in addition to Ezrin Gilmore Waters, was James Guthrie, who produced The Warning.
0: Next song is gonna get close to you. Wait, did, did we talk about the whisper already? That's what we were just talking about. We were <laughs> oh, oh.
2: oh, I thought I thought that was the preamble to the whisper. No, oh. no,
0: that was that was the oh. talk about the whisper. Go okay. ahead, Paul. What you got?
2: Wow, wow. <laughs> I mean Oh Jesus. <laughs> um so I you know, I think it like you, you mentioned the pulse of this, like the this I mean the the three songs that start this off are amazing right the the break from from walking the shadows to the bass intro into into i dream in infrared and then you know the the chimes that we hear every once in a while in in uh, modern day music and then boom right in, right into this the the three the sort of the trio of songs to start this off i i don't know that there's a better trio of songs on to start off any album but you know this song the lyrics like are so amazing and it really strikes me and like the the best part is like there's this whole back and forth right the um you know voices are calling me back right and he's back to the day yeah that's great right but meanwhile while that's happening there's a whisper in your ears the headphones going please take my hand right yeah. don't be afraid i am your master you are my slave it's like what <laughs> <laughs> like what is this song about what is going on
3: <laughs> that's brilliant
2: and it and it and the the best part is like like you say joe it's like after it's so it's such a great you know it's such a great lyric because you can take it in a couple different ways, you know, each verse. And then, like you say, you know, it's 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 feeling like, you know, it's it's you're you you feel like there's this uh, this natural oppression in this song. And yet the very last line uh, is follow the impulse you have. I'll show you the way. Forget what you've learned in the past. Now listen. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it it's actually a little bit of a positive uplifting, like you said, like it's rage, but it's. It's like there's a purpose behind this. There's a there's an opportunity. I don't think that that's easy to pull off. And and I think they do it quite
3: well. So I just want to credit DeGarmo. He's the sole
0: author. So these words come from him. Something like this could come off super nerdy, to use a, a good old phrase. That some of the hobbity shit that early Genesis would do, right? Like they were just way far out in nerdland. And something like this, if not done properly, much like the sound design or anything else, could come off as as kind of a, a joke. Somehow there is this constant sincerity. I mean, a lot of these stories, you know, especially when we talk, you know, next episode, it's a ridiculous premise. But you buy into it. It's
3: just cool enough for me to let go. (laughs)
0: <laughs> <And> yeah. <laughs> this
3: is and this is way into that category. It's like, I don't care if it's goofy. It, it it feels right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 very good. So gonna get close to you. I think it's fair to say that when we were sixteen, no one knew this was a cover. I didn't know this was a cover when I was fifty-one. Okay. I, and, and, I just and, I just found out a couple months ago. And that was going to be the next question, right? None of us knew at 16 that it was a cover. At what point? Like, I was prepared as we were gearing up for this that I was going to make this whole big spiel about how this directly ties in to prog rock and this was the the metal answer to Intruder and everything else. And then I'm like, wait, it's a fucking cover? Well, that ruins everything. (laughs) It's still a fantastic song. It's still uber creepy. A great video with the with hair and everything else that's going on. And when you understand that it's a cover, some of it makes sense. Because musically, it is a little bit different. But, but they did a really good job of sort of integrating it into the, the greater whole, which I think is, is is really impressive. And just the creep factor... This song is absolutely unnerving in in the level of, of creepiness that it has. Whether it's, it's a direct correlation to Intruder or not, they both give me the same amount of willies. With the exception that this song does have absolutely, here again, one of the best lines ever. And, and the way that it's delivered vocally with the melody is delightful as well. And that is, of course, if you knew my infinite charms, there would be no reason to be so alone. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm some kind of lunatic. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: Dude, that is it. That is the highlight of the song. So this song is so disjointed, and it's amazing rhythmically the way it skips around. And it's got that. While that is going on in the background, like there's all these great things happening. It's very close to the original. Like they did a very, a very true job to the original. There's not like a drum beat through the whole thing and then it kicks in and then it stays out again. And it's like, it's all these effects. And then when it gets to that line, everybody's in, it's just like, Boom, boom, bah, da, boom, boom, boom. And it's like the whole song comes into focus for that line. That's such a childish thing to say. <laughs> it is so fucking awesome when that all comes together like that.
1: <laughs> Back in the day, I remember watching the Headbangers Ball. I remember watching it with Chris shy and the song would come on. I loved it. I think it was, it was sort of a risky thing for them to do because, I mean, that person... Uh, the bellow um you know it it sort of was a very weird eclectic song and it is creepy it does seem creepier when 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 a man is singing it than a woman (laughs) yeah i think
0: yeah there's much more menace when a man's singing it i think
1: right right but you know it's sort of in that It's
0: much more culturally appropriate let's face it this is truly
1: right but it, it, it worked back in the day, and you're listening to the Headbangers Ball or whatever, and, and the this, this song comes on. It's not like a soft rock, like power ballad thing where it was more of a, a mid-tempo, sort of gave you a taste of, of the album, but it was, it was very accessible. And um, they, they kind of took a chance there, really.
0: I want to say I read or heard somewhere that they, for whatever reason, they wanted to do a cover. And this was the cover they specifically chose to do. I don't have any insight as to why they wanted to do a cover, but it's it's brilliant.
3: (laughs) I always wonder what was Jeff thinking to have Gonna Get Close to You and Walk in the Shadows on the same album on the same side because they're just not mentally sound. So if there are any moral lessons to this album, they're all very indirect because his... (laughs) His
0: characters are deeply flawed. Deeply flawed.
2: <laughs> you know, Tom, you mentioned Eddie Jackson's bass lines. I don't remember being really aware of bass players using distortion. So many many years after 1986. In the last few months of listening to this and getting ready, like this song in particular, like the whole chorus while it's like gonna get close to you the, it's all the bass and the sound is gnarly the bass tone is just unreal it's like wow it just struck me like like a ton of bricks like i was like jesus eddie jackson's really getting the job done on the bass and sort of trend setting the future of bass tone maybe a little bit in the metal arena i also think that it's fun that Jeff Tate is kind of channeling Michael Jackson in this song as well, because he does the old, he goes like, I'm gonna get close to you. And then he goes, uh-uh, so close to you. Right? <laughs> He's got those little glottal things going on. Yeah. Like, they've got it all on this album, man. Everything. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I'm not going to let that slip without a Geezer Butler comment. I mean, we, we, we did have distortion on base prior to this, but I think what you're getting at Paul is it's usually like a couple of cabinets and there's a clean cabinet and a dirty cabinet. And it's just the, the the modern definition of what distortion is. It's,
0: it's impressive. I love it. So if we move on to the killing words, now I've got two general notes. They're written in reverse order that I'm going to give them. I, I just want to point out that this is just a prime example of the absolute enormity of the drums on this record. (laughs) I mean, they're always huge, but there's something about the killing words that just ah, illustrates this to me so well. We also have a little bit more sound design here, but the real key to this, and, and the thing that geeks me out, probably more than anything, is this being such a prime example of the expressiveness of Jeff Tate's vocal delivery. The way he he kind of works through, certainly that first verse, wait for me, I'll understand, I just need time to comprehend your changes. There's always been these changes in you, but the, the sort of stop and start, and he's Dipping down and coming up. And and he's, oh, Mm -hmm. God, Mm -hmm. it's just fucking phenomenal. These words in general. Wait for me, I'll understand. I just need time to comprehend your changes. There's always been these changes in you. I remember that there was a time when fears we had, we left behind and we danced. But it seems the more we learn, we learn that it's over. Forget if you can, the way you moved when our hands touched... You forced me to force you. Do you remember the dreams, the nightmares we shared? The poison of love so pure, it's deceiving. And deceit is all we have. It's got to be over. Oh, my God. That's just like, ah, mm-hmm. oh. mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and here's the one line that, honestly, I didn't know about what this line was until prepping for this. And it makes perfect sense. It's just part of what we already talked about. It's the most dated line in this entire record. And yet somehow, even to this day in 2021, it comes off as charming. Now the wireless in my hand is ringing. Wireless? What? Quick aside. We all know that I've been sort of half studying German for several years on on Duolingo. Worst German word ever. For cell phone, the German word is handy, which sounds like a hand job, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. Now the wireless but, in my hand you know,
2: it could have been it could have been worse. See they could have said the cordless. You they know? they could have. Uh, Because the wireless, you know, hey, my cell phone, you know, you know, wireless, you know, yeah.
0: Now the wireless in my hand is ringing. The distance of our lives keeps spreading. The pounding of my heart, I'm not listening. Your voice from far away is screaming, it's over. Oh, yeah. At that point, he's just letting it loose with that line. It's absolutely stunning.
3: That was brilliant, Joe. I just don't know how you don't pause before the second word changes, because that's that that's what does it for me. There's always been these <gasps> changes, changes. <laughs> changes. <laughs> in you. Yeah, this is incredibly good. It's another it's another Degarma, which makes me think he could have contributed contributed to the words, uh, but it's also Tate. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic.
2: It's another uh, really special guitar solo trade-off. It starts out with just like that incredible bend. By now, it's-, it's clear these guys are top-notch. Like these guys can melt your face off, but they can bend a note to perfection and just hold it. But the whole band is kind of involved in the rhythm. It's like the halftime sort of situation. Then it goes into the... You know, it's really lovely. And it complements everything that's going on. And it builds directly into that sort of climactic verse that, Joe, you just recited. The thing that I find amazing about this song is the version on Rage for Order is so, so good. Yet they've done a lot of versions live without all of the fancy keyboard things and without even a lot of the backing vocals, which you would think, gosh, what would this song be like without that? The song is so good. And the delivery of Jeff Tate is so good that, you know, even when they do it stripped down, it's uh, it's pretty amazing.
1: I have one word, theatrical. So it pretty much goes with what you were saying, Jeff. This is really what makes Jeff Tate, Jeff Tate. He acts a lot of the stuff out. There's a visual that you actually um, can feel. Even if you didn't see it, you're actually feeling it. This song in particular really brings that out.
0: Moving on from there, we go to Surgical Strike.
2: It's lonely in the field.
0: <laughs> is this the first AI-type theme song on this record? I think it is. Or We introduced this sort of idea on The Warning. We gushed a little bit in the last song, I believe, about Eddie Jackson. I actually have a beef with Eddie oh. Jackson sometimes, and that is this farty, slappy bass sound that he gets that I've just can't stand. In this particular case, not a big fan of what Eddie's doing. Not to say he's not great at what he plays. I just, I don't care for that particular sound personally.
3: Wait a second. Wait a second. The iconic sound in Mind Crime, where he's pounding on the bass and it's kind of loosey slappy. You don't like
0: that? Not here. No. Huh.
3: All right. I mean, God, just when you think, you know, what's good. <laughs> I mean, come on. That is the glue of Queenswreck. Like when everybody's freaking out, doing their own syncopations, Jeff's got his rhythms all over the place. They, they, they're they still drawing you in with that Eddie Jackson Rockenfeld kind of merge death punch that they keep doing. And I'm
0: really surprised that sound but- doesn't. But tonally, it, it will change from time and, and time again. And, and I just don't like this particular manifestation. I, any tiebreakers here? Because I'm still standing up for that.
3: <laughs> the Jackson death punch is is right man. The Jackson, Jackson. death
1: I'm all, punch. I'm all about Eddie Jackson on this album. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I've never heard anything that I haven't liked.
2: I think I'm I'm more offended by the nonsensical keyboard sounds of screaming in digital than I am the bass in surgical, surgical strike.
0: strike. Yeah, I, I mean it, it's it's not a big deal. I still I still love the song. It's just that's a a minor grievance. I mean, my mind goes right to the ridiculous
2: backing vocals in the chorus. Right, we've taught them not to feel like it's just so staccato and so right on, and it's in perfect harmony, and you're
0: just like, what the fuck was
2: that? That just happened? <laughs>
0: There was a a heavy metal gimmick about this time that everyone had to use. Of course, that was the whole phaser thing. Here again, I think Queensryche does it better than most. It seems to be somehow more integrated to the song and actually work with or serve the song in some regards as opposed to, say, when Dokken would do it, which just kind of came out of nowhere, and you're like, oh, okay, we did that. Again, it's a small thing, but I just, I love the line, at Master Control, assessment will not be by humans. Ooh. For someone who's terrified of Skynet... There's no turning back. Freaks me out a little bit.
3: I do love how they get right to the point in the song. They always hint... At the threat of violence, government control, blah, 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 science fiction, whatever it is. But this gets right to the heart of dystopia warfare, <laughs> dystopic modern warfare. There's a tradition of anti-war in metal that goes right to the jugular. This is perhaps the most obvious anti-war message from Queensryche. I was tempted to to pull up a list here. Black Sabbath, War Pigs, Megadeth with Peace Cells, Iron Maiden with Run to the Hills. With Queen's uh, Queensryche, it's kind of vague. You don't know quite what the editorial is. But I think in Surgical Strike, it's pretty obvious what they're saying taught them not to feel. Yep, I get it. And my new love for uh, Michael Wilton going into this whole thing. I thought that Michael Wilton would not necessarily be, you know, ranking as high as the other contributors but damn, I give him props for this. I, I'm, I'm realizing through this exercise just how much he did contribute. I think he does a great job. And I'm in interviews, I'm liking him more and more.
2: Yeah, I mean, it might be redundant to comment on the awesome guitar solo that leads right into that big phaser part like you were talking about. Yeah. You're on a pretty much an emotional roller coaster through the first five tracks of this. It's great to just have... A really hard rock song about machines taking over the world. It's sort of like a nice break from all of the other emotional trauma you're going through.
0: <laughs> it's, it's a nice break. <laughs> <laughs> Skynet wiping out humanity? That's, that's good. We like that. That's relaxing. Since we've been rambling on and we are halfway through, Paul's prediction comes true. It looks like we will not finish this album in this in this episode, which means we uh, we get to extend out our time with Rage for Order for another week and that gives me another week to find my remastered edition so as part of the intro to our next episode I can hopefully read in some of the hyperbole in my super dramatic voice there you go which will be fun so we're at the end of, of side one at this point we will stop here and next episode we will collect any additional thoughts we have on Rage for Order and we will finish out side two very strong very good to finally get to this gentleman this feels wonderful to me and look forward to finishing it out next week so thanks guys We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. You can reach us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We are at Progpala on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is Progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcasts. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.
3: have the information in front of me because I was Googling John Travolta's pompadour and trying to compare it to Jeff Tate. Ah!
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think Jeff Tate wins.
3: (laughs) (laughs) He does. He he, he really, really, really does. I also pulled up Pepe Le Pew who has quite a pompadour but nothing close to Jeff Tate.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, because Jeff gets like vertical out from the head up back over (laughs) i mean the 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 amount of space between the top of his head and the top of his hair is like inches but he has as much extension out the front it's it's just off the charts (laughs) yeah yeah i wasn't gonna go there thank you (laughs) joe
3: um the uh